0: Section 14 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 14. I felt it to be important that she should not leave the church before I had been able to look long enough upon her, reminding myself that for years past I had regarded the sight of her as a thing eminently to be desired, and I kept my eyes fixed on her, as though by gazing at her I should be able to carry away and incorporate, to store up for later reference in myself, the memory of that prominent nose, those red cheeks, of all those details which struck me as so much precious, authentic, unparalleled information with regard to her face. And now that, whenever I brought my mind to bear upon that face, and especially, perhaps, in my determination that form of the instinct of self-preservation, with which we guard everything that is best in ourselves, not to admit that I had been in any way deceived. I found only beauty there, setting her once again, since they were one and the same person, this lady who sat before me, and that Duchess de Gaumont, whom, until then, I had been used to conjure into an imagined shape, apart from, and above that common run of humanity with which the sight, pure and simple, of her in the flesh had made me for a moment confound her, I grew indignant when I heard people saying in the congregation round me, she is better looking than Madame Sazerat, or than Mademoiselle Ventoy, as though she had been in any way comparable with them. And my gaze resting upon her fair hair, her blue eyes, the lines of her neck, and overlooking the features which might have reminded me of the faces of other women, I cried out within myself, as I admired this deliberately unfinished sketch, how lovely she is, what true nobility, it is indeed a proud Germont, the descendant of Genevieve de Brabant, that I have before me and the care which I took to focus all my attention upon her face, succeeded in isolating it so completely that today, when I call that marriage ceremony to mind, I find it impossible to visualise any single person who was present, except her, and the beadle who answered me in the affirmative when I inquired whether the lady was, indeed, Madame de Gaumont. But her, I can see her still quite clearly, especially at the moment when the procession filed into the sacristy, lighted by the intermittent, hot sunshine of a windy and rainy day, where Madame de Germont found herself in the midst of all those Cambrai people, whose names, even, she did not know, but whose inferiority proclaimed her own supremacy so loud that she must, in return, feel for them a genuine, pitying sympathy, and whom she might count on impressing even more forcibly by virtue of her simplicity and natural charm and then too since she could not bring into play the deliberate glances charged with a definite meaning which one directs in a crowd towards people whom one knows but must allow her vague thoughts to escape continually from her eyes in a flood of blue light which she was powerless to control She was anxious not to distress in any way, not to seem to be despising those humbler mortals over whom that current flowed, by whom it was everywhere arrested. I can see again today, above her mauve scarf, silky and buoyant, the gentle astonishment in her eyes, to which she had added, without daring to address it to any one in particular, but so that every one might enjoy his share of it, the almost timid smile of a sovereign lady who seems to be making an apology for her presence among the vassals whom she loves. This smile rested upon myself, who had never ceased to follow her with my eyes. And I, remembering the glance which she had let fall upon me during the service, blue as a ray of sunlight that had penetrated the window of Gilbert the Bad, said to myself, Of course, she is thinking about me. I fancied that I had found favour in her sight, that she would continue to think of me after she had left the church, and would, perhaps, grow pensive again that evening at Guermont on my account. And at once I fell in love with her, for if it is sometimes enough to make us love a woman that she looks on us with contempt, as I supposed Mademoiselle Swan to have done, While we imagine that she cannot ever be ours it is enough also sometimes that she looks on us kindly as madame de germont did then while we think of her as almost ours already her eyes waxed blue as a periwinkle flower wholly beyond my reach yet dedicated by her to me and the sun bursting out again from behind a threatening cloud and darting the full force of its rays onto the square and into the sacristy shed a geranium glow over the red carpet laid down for the wedding along which madame de germont smilingly advanced and covered its woollen texture with a nap of rosy velvet a bloom of light giving it that sort of tenderness of solemn sweetness, in the pomp of a joyful celebration, which characterise certain pages of Lohengrin, certain paintings by Carpaccio, and make us understand how Baudelaire was able to apply to the sound of the trumpet the epithet delicious. How often, after that day, in the course of my walks along the Germontway, and with what an intensified melancholy did I reflect on my lack of qualification for a literary career, and that I must abandon all hope of ever becoming a famous author. The regret that I felt for this, while I lingered alone to dream for a little by myself, made me suffer so acutely that, in order not to feel it, my mind of its own accord, by a sort of inhibition in the instant of pain, ceased entirely to think of verse-making, of fiction, of the poetic future on which my want of talent precluded me from counting. Then, quite apart from all those literary preoccupations, and without definite attachment to anything, suddenly a roof, a gleam of sunlight reflected from a stone, the smell of a road, would make me stop still, to enjoy the special pleasure that each of them gave me and also because they appeared to be concealing, beneath what my eyes could see, something which they invited me to approach and seize from them, but which, despite all my efforts, I never managed to discover. As I felt that the mysterious object was to be found in them, I would stand there in front of them, motionless, gazing, breathing, endeavouring to penetrate with my mind beyond the thing seen or smelt. And if I had then to hasten after my grandfather to proceed on my way, I would still seek to recover my sense of them by closing my eyes. I would concentrate upon recalling exactly the line of the roof, the colour of the stone, which, without my being able to understand why, had seemed to me to be teeming, ready to open, to yield up to me the secret treasure of which they were themselves no more than the outer coverings. It was certainly not any impression of this kind that could or would restore the hope I had lost of succeeding one day in becoming an author and poet, for each of them was associated with some material object devoid of any intellectual value and suggesting no abstract truth. But at least they gave me an unreasoning pleasure, the illusion of a sort of fecundity of mind, and in that way distracted me from the tedium, from the sense of my own impotence, which I had felt whenever I had sought a philosophic theme for some great literary work. So urgent was the task imposed on my conscience by these impressions of form or perfume or colour to strive for a perception of what lay hidden beneath them that I was never long in seeking an excuse which would allow me to relax so strenuous an effort and to spare myself the fatigue that it involved. As good luck would have it, my parents called me. I felt that I had not, for the moment, the calm environment necessary for a successful pursuit of my researches, and that it would be better to think no more of the matter until I reached home, and not to exhaust myself in the meantime to no purpose. And so I concerned myself no longer with the mystery that lay hidden in a form or a perfume, quite at ease in my mind, since I was taking it home with me, protected by its visible and tangible covering, beneath which I should find it still alive, like the fish which, on days when I had been allowed to go out fishing, I used to carry back in my basket, buried in a couch of grass which kept them cool and fresh. Once in the house again, I would begin to think of something else, and so my mind would become littered, as my room was with the flowers that I had gathered on my walks, or the odds and ends that people had given me, with a stone, from the surface of which the sunlight was reflected, a roof, the sound of a bell, the smell of fallen leaves, a confused mass of different images, under which must have perished long ago the reality of which I used to have some foreboding, but which I never had the energy to discover and bring to light. Once, however, when we had prolonged our walk far beyond its ordinary limits, and so had been very glad to encounter, half-way home, as afternoon darkened into evening, Dr. Persepiet, who drove past us at full speed in his carriage, saw and recognized us, stopped, and made us jump in beside him, I received an impression of this sort, which I did not abandon, without having first subjected it to an examination a little more thorough. I had been set on the box beside the coachman. We were going like the wind, because the doctor had still, before returning to Combray, to call at Martinville-les-Sec, at the house of a patient, at whose door he asked us to wait for him. At a bend in the road I experienced, suddenly, that special pleasure— which bore no resemblance to any other when i caught sight of the twin steeples of martinville on which the setting sun was playing while the movement of the carriage and the windings of the road seemed to keep them continually changing their position and then of a third steeple that of vievick which although separated from them by a hill and a valley and rising from rather higher ground in the distance "'appeared none the less to be standing by their side. "'In ascertaining and noting the shape of their spires, "'the changes of aspect, the sunny warmth of their surfaces, "'I felt that I was not penetrating to the full depth of my impression. "'That something more lay behind that mobility, that luminosity, "'something which they seemed at once to contain and to conceal.' The steeples appeared so distant, and we ourselves seemed to come so little nearer them, that I was astonished when, a few minutes later, we drew up outside the church of Martinville. I did not know the reason for the pleasure which I had found in seeing them upon the horizon, and the business of trying to find out what that reason was seemed to me irksome. I wished only to keep in reserve in my brain those converging lines, moving in the sunshine, and, for the time being, to think of them no more, and it is probable that, had I done so, those two steeples would have vanished for ever in a great medley of trees and roofs and scents and sounds which I had noticed and set apart on account of the obscure sense of pleasure which they gave me, but without ever exploring them more fully. I got down from the box to talk to my parents while we were waiting for the doctor to reappear. Then it was time to start. I climbed up again to my place, turning my head to look back once more, at my steeples, of which, a little later, I caught a farewell glimpse at a turn in the road. The coachman, who seemed little inclined for conversation, having barely acknowledged my remarks, I was obliged, in default of other society, to fall back on my own, and to attempt to recapture the vision of my steeples. And presently, their outlines, and their sunlit surface, as though they had been a sort of rind, "'were stripped apart. "'A little of what they had concealed from me "'became apparent. "'An idea came into my mind "'which had not existed for me a moment earlier, "'framed itself in words in my head, "'and the pleasure with which the first sight of them "'just now had filled me "'was so much enhanced that, "'overpowered by a sort of intoxication, "'I could no longer think of anything but them. "'At this point,' Although we had now travelled a long way from Martinville, I turned my head and caught sight of them again, quite black this time, for the sun had meanwhile set. Every few minutes a turn in the road would sweep them out of sight. Then they showed themselves for the last time, and so I saw them no more. Without admitting to myself that what lay buried within the steeples of Martinville must be something analogous to a charming phrase, since it was in the form of words which gave me pleasure that it had appeared to me. I borrowed a pencil and some paper from the doctor, and composed, in spite of the jolting of the carriage, to appease my conscience and to satisfy my enthusiasm, the following little fragment, which I have since discovered, and now reproduce, with only a slight revision here and there. Alone, rising from the level of the plain, and seemingly lost in that expanse of open country, climbed to the sky the twin steeples of Martinville. Presently we saw three, springing into position, confronting them by a daring vault, a third, a dilatory steeple, that of Viervique, was come to join them. The minutes passed, we were moving rapidly, and yet the three steeples were always a long way ahead of us, like three birds perched upon the plain, motionless and conspicuous in the sunlight. Then the steeple of Viervique withdrew, took its proper distance, and the steeples of Martinville remained alone, gilded by the light of the setting sun, which, even at that distance, I could see playing and smiling upon their sloped sides. We had been so long in approaching them, that I was thinking of the time that must still elapse before we could reach them, when, of a sudden, the carriage, having turned a corner, set us down at their feet and they had flung themselves so abruptly in our path that we had barely time to stop before being dashed against the porch of the church. We resumed our course. We had left Martinville some little time, and the village, after accompanying us for a few seconds, had already disappeared, when, lingering alone on the horizon to watch our flight, its steeples and that of Yerwick Wave once again, in token of farewell, the sun-bathed pinnacles. Sometimes one would withdraw, so that the other two might watch us for a moment still. Then the road changed direction, they veered in the light like three golden pivots, and vanished from my gaze. But, a little later, when we were already close to Combray, the sun having set meanwhile, I caught sight of them for the last time, far away, and seeming no more now than three flowers painted upon the sky above the low line of fields. They made me think, too, of three maidens in a legend, abandoned in a solitary place over which night had begun to fall, and while we drew away from them at a gallop, I could see them timidly seeking their way, and, after some awkward Stumbling movements of their noble silhouettes, Drawing close to one another, Slipping one behind another, Showing nothing more now, Against the still rosy sky, Than a single dusky form, Charming and resigned, And so vanishing in the night. I never thought again of this page, But at the moment when, "'on my corner of the box-seat, "'where the doctor's coachman "'was in the habit of placing in a hamper "'the fowls which he had brought "'at Martinville Market, "'I had finished writing it, "'I found such a sense of happiness, "'felt that it had so entirely relieved my mind "'of the obsession of the steeples, "'and of the mystery which they concealed, "'that, as though I myself were a hen, "'and had just laid an egg I began to sing at the top of my voice. All day long, during these walks, I had been able to muse upon the pleasure that there would be in the friendship of the Duchess de Gamotte, in fishing for trout, in drifting by myself in a boat on the Vivonne, and greedy for happiness, I asked nothing more from life. "'in such moments, than that it should consist always of a series of joyous afternoons. "'But when, on our way home, I had caught sight of a farm on the left of the road "'at some distance from two other farms which were themselves close together, "'and from which, to return to Cambrai, we need only turn down an avenue of oaks, "'bordered on one side by a series of orchard-closes,' "'each one planted at regular intervals with apple-trees "'which cast upon the ground, when they were lighted by the setting sun, "'the Japanese stencil of their shadows. "'Then, sharply, my heart would begin to beat. "'I would know that in half an hour we should be at home, "'and that there, as was the rule on days when we had taken the Germont Way, "'and dinner was, in consequence, served later than usual.' I should be sent to bed as soon as I had swallowed my soup, so that my mother, kept at table, just as though there had been company to dinner, would not come upstairs to say good-night to me in bed. The zone of melancholy which I then entered was totally distinct from that other zone, in which I had been bounding for joy a moment earlier. Just as sometimes in the sky a band of pink is separated, as though by a line invisibly ruled from a band of green or black. You may see a bird flying across the pink. It draws near the borderline, touches it, enters, and is lost upon the black. The longings by which I had just now been absorbed, to go to Germont, to travel, to live a life of happiness, I was now so remote from them, "'that their fulfilment would have afforded me no pleasure. "'How readily would I have sacrificed them all "'just to be able to cry all night long "'in the arms of Mamma. "'Shuddering with emotion, "'I could not take my agonised eyes from my mother's face, "'which was not to appear that evening in the bedroom, "'where I could see myself already lying in imagination.' And wished only that I were lying dead. And this state would persist until the morrow, when, the rays of morning leaning their bars of light, as the gardener might lean his ladder against the wall overgrown with nasturtiums, which clambered up it as far as my window sill, I would leap out of bed to run down at once into the garden, with no thought of the fact that evening must return, and with it the hour when I must leave my mother. And so it was, from the Gamont way, that I learned to distinguish between these states which reigned alternately in my mind, during certain periods, going so far as to divide every day between them, each one returning to dispossess the other with the regularity of a fever and ague, contiguous and yet so foreign to one another, so devoid of means of communication, that I could no longer understand or even picture to myself in one state what I had desired or dreaded or even done in the other. So the Maisiglies way and the Gamont Way remain for me linked WITH MANY OF THE LITTLE instances OF THAT ONE OF ALL THE DIVERSE LIVES, ALONG WHOSE parallel LINES WE ARE MOVED, WHICH IS THE MOST ABUNDANT IN SUDDEN REVERSES OF FORTUNE, THE RICHEST IN EPISODES, I MEAN THE LIFE OF THE MIND. DOUBTLESS IT MAKES IN US AN IMPERCEPTIBLE PROGRESS, AND THE TRUTHS WHICH HAVE CHANGED FOR US ITS MEANING AND ITS ASPECT, WHICH HAVE OPENED NEW paths BEFORE OUR FEET, WE HAD FOR LONG BEEN PREPARING FOR THEIR DISCOVERY, BUT THAT PREPARATION WAS UNCONSCIOUS, AND FOR US THOSE TRUTHS DATE ONLY FROM THE DAY, FROM THE MINUTE WHEN THEY BECAME APPARENT. THE FLOWERS WHICH PLAYED THEN AMONG THE GRASS, THE WATER WHICH RIPPLED PAST IN THE SUNSHINE, the whole landscape which served as environment to their apparition lingers around the memory of them still with its unconscious or unheeding air and certainly when they were slowly scrutinized by this humble passer-by by this dreaming child as the face of a king is scrutinized by a petitioner lost in the crowd that scrap of nature That corner of a garden could never suppose that it would be thanks to him, That they would be elected to survive in all their most ephemeral details. And yet the scent of hawthorn, Which strays plundering along the hedge from which, In a little while, the dog-roses will have banished it, A sound of footsteps, followed by no echo, upon a gravel path, A bubble formed at the side of a water-plant by the current, And formed only to burst. My exaltation of mind has borne them with it, And has succeeded in making them traverse All these successive years, While all around them the once-trodden ways have vanished, While those who thronged those ways. And even the memory of those who thronged those trodden ways, are dead. Sometimes the fragment of landscape thus transported into the present will detach itself in such isolation from all associations that it floats uncertainly upon my mind, like a flowering isle of Delos, and I am unable to say from what place, from what time, Perhaps, quite simply, from which of my dreams it comes. But it is, pre-eminently, as the deepest layer of my mental soil, As firm sights on which I still may build, That I regard the mesa and Germont ways. It is because I used to think of certain things, Of certain people, while I was roaming along them, That the things... The people which they taught me to know, and these alone, I still take seriously, still give me joy. Whether it be that the faith which creates has ceased to exist in me, or that reality will take shape in the memory alone, the flowers that people show me nowadays for the first time never seem to me to be true flowers. The Mesa way, with its lilacs, its hawthorns, its cornflowers, its poppies, its apple trees, the Gemont Way, with its river full of tadpoles, its water lilies, and its buttercups, have constituted for me for all time the picture of the land in which I fain would pass my life, in which my only requirements are that I may go out fishing, Drift idly in a boat, see the ruins of a Gothic fortress in the grass, And find hidden among the cornfields, as Saint-André-de-Champley hidden, An old church, monumental, rustic, and yellow like a millstone, And the cornflowers, the hawthorns, the apple-trees, Which I may happen, when I go walking, to encounter in the fields because they are situated at the same depth, on the level of my past life, at once establish contact with my heart. And yet, because there is an element of individuality in places, when I am seized with a desire to see again the Gamont way, it would not be satisfied were I led to the banks of a river in which were lilies as fair or even fairer than those in the Vivonne. Any more than on my return home in the evening, At the hour when there awakened in me That anguish which, later on in life, Transfers itself to the passion of love, And may even become its inseparable companion. I should have wished for any strange mother To come in and say good-night to me, Though she were far more beautiful And more intelligent than my own. No! Just as the one thing necessary to send me to sleep contented in that untroubled peace which no mistress in later years has ever been able to give me, since one has doubts of them, at the moment when one believes in them, and never can possess their hearts, as I used to receive in her kiss, the heart of my mother, complete, without scruple or reservation, Unburdened by any liability Save to myself Was that it should be my mother who came That she should incline towards me That face on which there was Beneath her eye Something that was, it appears, a blemish And which I loved as much as all the rest So what I want to see again Is the Gamont way as I knew it with a farm that stood a little apart from the two neighbouring farms, pressed so close together at the entrance to the oak avenue. Those meadows, upon whose surface, when it is polished by the sun to the mirroring radiance of a lake, are outlined the leaves of the apple trees. That whole landscape, whose individuality sometimes at night, in my dreams, binds me with a power that is almost fantastic, of which I can discover no trace when I awake. No doubt, by virtue of having permanently and indissolubly combined in me groups of different impressions, for no reason save that they had made me feel several separate things at the same time, the Mesaglies and Gamont ways left me exposed in later life. To much disillusionment, and even to many mistakes. For often I have wished to see a person again, without realising that it was simply because that person recalled to me a hedge of hawthorns in blossom. And I have been led to believe, and to make someone else believe, in an aftermath of affection, by what was no more than an inclination to travel, But by the same qualities and by their persistence in those of my impressions today to which they can find an attachment, the two ways give to those impressions a foundation, depth, a dimension lacking from the rest. They invest them too with a charm, a significance which is for me alone. When on a summer evening, the resounding sky growls like a tawny lion, And every one is complaining of the storm. It is along the mesicles way That my fancy strays alone in ecstasy, Inhaling through the noise of falling rain The odor of invisible and persistent lilac trees. And so... I would often lie until morning, dreaming of the old days at Combray, of my melancholy and wakeful evenings there, of other days besides, the memory of which had been more lately restored to me by the taste, by what would have been called at Combray the perfume of a cup of tea, and, by an association of memories, of a story which, many years after I had left the little place, had been told me of a love affair in which Swan had been involved before I was born, with that accuracy of detail which it is easier often to obtain when we are studying the lives of people who have been dead for centuries than when we are trying to chronicle those of our own most intimate friends, an accuracy which it seems as impossible to attain as it seemed impossible to speak from one town to another, before we learned of the contrivance by which that impossibility has been overcome. All these memories, following one after another, were condensed into a single substance, but had not so far coalesced that I could not discern between the three strata, between my oldest My instinctive memories, those others, inspired more recently by a taste or perfume, and those which were actually the memories of another, from whom I had acquired them at second hand. No fissures, indeed no geological faults, but at least those veins, those streaks of color which in certain rocks, in certain marbles, point to differences of origin, age, and formation. It is true that, when morning drew near, I would long have settled the brief uncertainty of my waking dream. I would know in what room I was actually lying, would have reconstructed it round about me in the darkness, and, fixing my orientation by memory alone, or with the assistance of a feeble glimmer of light, at the foot of which I placed the curtains and the window, would have reconstructed it complete, and with its furniture, as an architect and an upholsterer might do, working upon an original, discarded plan of the doors and windows, would have replaced the mirrors, and set the chest of drawers on its accustomed site. But scarcely had daylight itself and no longer the gleam from a last dying ember on a brass curtain-rod, which I had mistaken for daylight, traced across the darkness, as with a stroke of chalk across a blackboard, its first white correcting grey. when the window, with its curtains, would leave the frame of the doorway, in which I had erroneously placed it, while, to make room for it, the writing-table, which my memory had clumsily fixed where the window ought to be, would hurry off at full speed, thrusting before it the mantelpiece, and sweeping aside the wall of the passage. The well of the courtyard would be enthroned on the spot where, a moment earlier, my dressing-room had lain, and the dwelling-place which I had built up for myself in the darkness would have gone to join all those other dwellings of which I had caught glimpses from the whirlpool of awakening, put to flight by that pale sign traced above my window-curtains by the uplifted forefinger of day. End of section 14